Welcome to Oaks Church, where we grow great lives and build big people. Thank you for checking out our podcast. We hope that you're encouraged by this life-changing message from Pastor Joel Scrivener. For more information, visit us online at oakschurch.com or follow us on social media at Oaks Church Texas. The title of my message today is Winning in Weakness. Anybody ever feel weak in here? I feel weak. I felt weak this morning. Winning and weakness. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm winning. Winning. Look at your other neighbor and say, I'm a winner. <laughs> I'm a winner. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this, because of the extravagance of these revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head. This is Paul speaking. In the chapter before, he's talked all about every, all of his accomplishments. He gets super braggadocious. He said, if these are apostles and you respect Peter and James and all these, look at what I have done. And then in 12, he said, the Lord actually took me to heaven. He showed me around heaven. I don't know if I was in body, out of body. But then he goes to verse seven. He says, because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel, a demon, he's talking about a thorn in the flesh. So many people, when talking about the thorn in the flesh, they might see, say that Paul had bad eyesight. Maybe Paul had a limp. Sometimes Paul talked like he wasn't the greatest speaker in the world. But he says very clearly that I had demonic oppression in my life. And he says, I prayed to the Lord to take it away. And this angel did his best to get me down. And in fact, all he did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. How many times do we spend our prayer, God, remove it? I don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't want to deal with this stress anymore. I don't want to deal with these negative situations that just seem to find a way into my life. And as I talked to you guys a couple months ago about stress, that there is an upside to stress. In a stressful life, it is a meaningful life. And you're in the world, and God isn't taking you out of the world yet, but you're not of this world. And he goes on to say, three times I begged God to take it away. And then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. And once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and I began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. The weaker I get, the stronger I become. Another translation says, and when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then I'm strong. See, it's not about how weak you are. It's about how strong he is. And sometimes this is God just gets glory in this and none of us like feeling weakness. I hate it. I hate feeling weak. I've been speaking for 14 years. I still get nervous. I'm like, Lord, take it away. He's like, why? It's good for you. It's good for you. <laughs> pressure is good for you. I'm like, Lord, I don't want the pressure. He's like, no. It's like, you're better off because of it. 
But when we are weak, then he is strong. Amen? Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, this is your word. It's not my word. I pray that you open our eyes, our ears to receive your word. May we leave here better than the way we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. So uh, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. You can uh, raise your hand if you'd like to, but have any of you ever felt small before? Yeah, okay. Um, I have felt small. When I was in third grade, I was actually not small. I was kind of tall for my age. I'm going to embarrass myself for a second. Is that all right with you? Of course it is. All right. I got a picture of myself on my third grade basketball team that they're going to throw up, please. Yes. It's amazing. You're going to want to see it. Oh, yeah. Here we go. This is nine-year-old Brandon with the Jonathan Taylor Thomas chili bowl from Home Improvement. I thought it was the greatest haircut of all time. I had no idea I would look back and I'd be like, oh my God, what was this? What was this mop on my head? Uh, I am wearing number 33, not the greatest smile by any means. Um, I'm in third grade and I am playing the center position. Now my basketball team, they're going to throw a picture of that. All eight people. Okay. So I probably wasn't that good. There were only three people on the bench, but I started at center. That's me on the top of the right. And we, our basketball team, we weren't good at one thing, basketball. <laughs> we were like very mannerly and we would like shout, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uh, we would wear these sweats and we'd take it off real good and we'd come out to our theme song and we are super hyped. But once the uh, horn sounded, it, it wasn't the greatest sight by any means, okay? <laughs> But I remember one time we got lucky enough when we actually got to the playoffs. Um, I don't know if they were accepting all the teams that year, but we wound up in the playoffs in the Irving City League. And I'm the center position. I got my lucky Kevin Garnett shoes and uh, I, I got them on. I listened to my song. I'm like amped up. I'm like, I can't wait for this. This is the playoffs. It's my time. It's my time. And we walk onto the court, and I'm walking to center court, and I see the other team. And keep in mind, I'm a, I'm a steady four foot three at the time, and I see who I'm gonna be guarding. And it's this lanky guy that is five foot three, he's a foot taller than me, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get so dominated today, like this guy, Man, a foot is really big when you're in elementary school. I want you to remember. I know that was a long time ago, but a whole foot. And dominated we did get. We got royally destroyed. We got sent home that day. I went home feeling very small, even though I considered myself a tall third grader. Thinking about another time when I was 17 years old, it was my very first time to speak in public. And we'll throw a picture for this. It was so hard for me to find a picture this is actually about a year later. Look at how skinny I was. It's crazy. I was skinny, but I wasn't happy because I didn't have an angel in my life yet. But I was, oh, anyway. So I was speaking, uh, I think that's at a small church outside of Houston, but I was speaking in different chapels. And I remember my first time, you can take that down. I don't want to embarrass myself anymore. I don't know if you noticed, but I had highlights. 
pretty impressive. And so did you. Okay. And um, so anyway, I remember the first time we were at a high school retreat and my buddy preached the night before, Josh, he went a whopping two and a half hour message. <laughs> I'm so serious. Two and a half hours. He preached on everything he knew. Uh, and then the next morning, it was my time. And I'm going, I, it's my schedule. We are going after breakfast. I'm speaking to the juniors and seniors in our high school. And I'm going to speak in the cafeteria. And I'm like, I'm going to skip breakfast. I need my alone time. I remember exactly what I preached. I preached off Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 63. And I, anyway, but I'm walking to the, to the uh, cafeteria and I was so nervous. Have you ever been so nervous that you're literally shaking? Like trembling. That's pretty obvious, right? Now people say, Brain, I can't tell you're nervous. Well, I used to be way more. I was shaking. My mouth was dry. My palms were sweaty. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go over. I was not the most talkative kid. I did not like school presentations. Amen, introverts, every single one of you. I did not want to do it. I don't want to show off this popsicle stick fort that supposedly Abraham Lincoln lived in. But he didn't. And I'm on the way to the chapel, and I'm praying in the spirit so loud. I was like, should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Like, I'm just like praying so loud. I get to the cafeteria. Breakfast is over. I wasn't really praying in the spirit, right? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I get to the cafeteria, and it's my time, and I was so nervous. And I remember speaking. I felt so small on the inside. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. But I had moments in my life where I knew that God was calling me to do something that I wasn't comfortable in. You know, God will never just call you to the things that are easy for you. A lot of the times, he'll call you to things that are difficult for you, things that you don't have a lot of talent in, or you think you don't have a lot of talent in, but it's in there. And like a diamond, that pressure is either going to bust you like a pipe or it can create you into a diamond if you let God work through you. It's like Paul said, the weaker I get, the stronger I become. You know, nobody ever feels qualified, but God doesn't make a habit of calling the qualified because he qualifies the called. And here's our main point for the message today. God makes a habit of choosing insignificant people to do significant things. Insignificant people that don't think much about themselves to do significant things in their life. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. He said, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, <laughs> this is such a backhanded compliment. Dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. But instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century was Billy Graham. Billy Graham preached from the years, this is such a long time, I can't imagine this, from 1947 to 2005. 58 years in ministry. The man preached on six continents, 185 countries, held 417 crusades, led 3.2 million people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. 
He was a pastor to presidents, a friend of sinners, and a light in a dark world. But he didn't start out that way. You know, Billy Graham, a lot of people don't know this, he was a Bible school dropout. And his first Bible school that he dropped out of, yes, I said first, I'll go to the next one in a minute. The director came to him and said, Billy, you're never going to amount to anything. He said, the most you'll do in your life is you'll be a poor Baptist preacher out in the sticks. No one's going to want to hear you. So Billy moves to Tampa, Florida, and he goes to a second Bible college, sees a really pretty girl. They start dating. Sparks fly. They didn't just start dating. He proposed. They were engaged to be married. They're making plans to be married. The girl comes to him one time, said, Billy, I want to break up with you. I want to be with somebody who has a clear vision in their life and is going to amount to something. He was devastated. A few days later, his whole world fell apart. He walks to the golf green that was by his campus and he walks up to the 18th hole and it falls to his knees. And he says, God, I'm all yours. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll go wherever you want me to go. The Lord did such a work in him, he knew he was called to ministry, that he actually started practicing in the nearby woods. He would go to the swamps and preach to the trees and the alligators. Because nobody wanted to listen to him yet. Nobody was inviting him to their church or the crusade. But then he eventually got an increase. He, he got a promotion. Some people started to hear about him. He started preaching in the streets, started preaching in trailer parks. A couple churches wanted him to come, and he started to be a little bit more well-known. And he went to a different Bible college in uh, near Chicago called Wheaton College. And one night he was praying, and a girl heard him from the next room and said, wow. He really knows who's he, who he's talking to. When he's praying, like I can tell that he knows God. That young girl was, her name was Ruth. A month later, they started dating. Afterwards, they got married, and the rest is history. God makes a habit of choosing insignificant people to do significant things. I'm reminded of Gideon. Judges chapter 6. Don't have to turn them. I'll tell you about it. One time, Gideon, he didn't live in Texas. It wasn't super hot. Well, he lived in Israel, and that's really hot. So it's probably the winter. And he's sitting under a tree, or maybe it is hot. He's sitting under a tree, and out of nowhere, an angel, excuse me, an angel appears to him and said, Mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And Gideon replies, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? He said, the Lord's not with us. The Midianites are going to overtake us. We serve them. Where is the Lord in this? Then the next verse says, then the Lord turned to him. This wasn't an angel. There are a few instances in the Old Testament where Jesus himself, the Lord, makes a special trip to people and gives them a message. He says, the Lord turned to him and he spoke to Gideon, and he said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I love that. Go with the strength you have, not the strength you're going to have. 
Not till you get stronger, more equipped, feel like you're more qualified. No, with the strength you have, go and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Gideon responded, dude, man, I don't look out to Gideon. He said, but how can I? I'm from the weakest tribe, Manasseh and Israel. I'm from the lowliest family and I am the least in my family. I'm the worst person you could pick. And Jesus responds, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one person. Story goes on. Gideon finally says yes. It took him actually a whole other chapter if you'd like to read about it. He needed a sign. Jesus said what about signs? He said a wicked and evil generation is looking for a sign. The sign is the word. The word of God is the will of God. Whatever Jesus is doing, that's what we're called to do. That's, that's the will of God. That's what I'm supposed to do. And it's not just about, hey, Lord, I really want this job. I, I want to know if I'm supposed to work here. You know, the Lord is more concerned with how you go to work than where you go to work. It says work unto the Lord enthusiastically. But Gideon's got 32,000 men and the Lord speaks to him and he says, that's too many people. Gideon's like, okay. He said, the Lord said, tell your army, whoever is scared, let them go home. 22,000 people went home. Gideon is left with 10,000 people. He prays to the Lord. The Lord says, man, Gideon, that's too many people. He said, I want you to send your army. He's like, you see that pond over there? I want you to send your army to get a drink from there. And everybody that sticks their face in the water, send them home. Everybody that drinks like a dog from the water, send them home. But those that are on their knees, grabbing the water from the cusp of their hands and drinking from their hands, that's your army. And here's why. Because they were actually anticipating and ready for the enemy. They had their head up. 300 people were left. That night, they attacked the Midianite clan. They overtake them, killed 120,000 people. 300 people did that. Why? Because the Lord was with them. Gideon was a weak man. Didn't consider his God very strong. But God makes a habit of choosing insignificant people to do significant Thanks. Your weakness is not a limit when his strength is your capacity. It's not a limit. It's no lids. There are no limits with you because his strength is your capacity. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people temporarily in days of old, but he is in you permanently today. He would come, it literally says the Spirit of God would come on people. The Spirit of God would come on Samson, who, by the way, was probably not a buff dude, wasn't on uh, a muscle magazine or anything like that. He's probably a normal-looking dude, and nobody expects him to be strong, but the Holy Spirit would come on him. The Holy Spirit would come on David. He'd come on Elijah. That's why you read about Elijah, and this dude is like as emotional, oh my goodness, just like a roller coaster. But when the Holy Spirit came on him, he was confident. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five and six, speaking of the Holy Spirit and the writer exclaims, for he himself has said, I will never leave you. 
nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, too many people take the idea of receiving the Holy Spirit as a suggestion, as a life hack, as a tip from a mentor or an advisor. But Jesus never suggested the Holy Spirit. He commanded the Holy Spirit. He said, don't you dare leave Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit is in you. But when he comes in you, you better take this to the whole world. John chapter 16, verse 7, it's Jesus' last night on earth. I want you to imagine, this isn't going to happen to anybody in here, but I want you to imagine that t- tomorrow is your last day. You know you're leaving earth tomorrow. Who would you hang out with today? What would you say today? With the people in your life that really mean something to you and maybe you haven't said something nice to them in six months, you would let it all out and you'd let them know. On the night before Jesus dies and go to the cross, his topic of conversation for the most part is the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, 7, he says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. See, by this time, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. He tells the wind and the waves to stop, and they stop. He gets frustrated because he's hungry, and he sees a fig newton tree. Not a fig newton tree. Who would want that? (laughs) But he sees a fig tree, and there's no figs, and he tells it to die. He said, hey, it's my birthday dinner tonight. Not really. He's like, but you're going to find a donkey over there. And then it was there. Whatever he says happens. But the beginning of this verse, he says, truly, truly. But in fact, it's like when you say, well, to be honest, like you weren't being honest the whole time. (laughs) He's like, this is going to be so hard to believe. I got to say this. Truly, truly, it's better for you. It's best for you that I leave. If Jesus was here today and one of your top 12 best friends in McKinney, that would be really hard to believe. But you know, if Jesus never left and he was still here today and he was in Israel, you know, stats say that two billion people profess themselves to be believers in Jesus. You wouldn't be able to call him because he'd always be with people. You'd have to get a thousand dollar airplane ticket and you'd have to fly to Tel Aviv, Israel. You'd probably get a connecting flight through Boston or New, uh, New York. You go to Tel Aviv. Man, that flight is horrible. I've done it once. It's, it's anyway. You'd get a rental car, you'd drive to the Sea of Galilee, because I don't know if you realize this or not, but in your Bible, Jesus is always at the Sea of Galilee. He's got a house there in Capernaum. Like, this is his place, because it's so beautiful, it's so scenic. Everything he does is around this eight-mile lake, for the most part. And then you'd have to go stand in line, and let's just say there's one million people there, which is actually a pretty small number And you wouldn't be able to get a hotel because there's like three hotels there. There's not a lot of places to stay. And you'd get in line. And let's say Jesus works 14 hours a day because remember, he's a human. He's got to sleep. He's got to eat. He needs some time off. But he gives 60 seconds to each person. It would be 1,190 days till he got to you. Three and a quarter years till you got to pray to Jesus. 
That's why it's best. The Holy Spirit will never leave you, never forsake you. And Jesus said, if you ask the Holy Spirit to come, my Father will give him to you. He's the seal of your inheritance. You'll have no lids with him. You'll have no capacity with him because your weakness is not your limit. But my strength is your capacity. If Jesus never left, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come. But now that the Holy Spirit is with you, you got to remember this part. Don't let your past dictate your future. Just because you have a past of sin doesn't mean that you have a future of sin. You are a new creation. You have been made new. Even though you still have thoughts of your sin, even though the devil, the accuser, still accuses you of your sin as a non-believer and as a believer, and typically when the most when God is calling you to do something. But God isn't looking for people that are qualified because he can do that. You have been made new. You are a new creation. You've been made right with God through Jesus, and it's never been about your goodness. It's always been about his goodness. God loans us his strength. He doesn't remind us of our weakness. Doesn't remind us of our weakness. Remind me of a verse in Revelation 2.17. Jesus is speaking to John. He has a message for seven different churches. And he says to him that overcomes, one of the things I'm going to give him is a new name. See, in our culture today, not a lot of people are going out to some law office or wherever and getting a new name. Not a lot of people are doing that. But back then in ancient times, if you were really good and really successful, you got a new name. You got an elevated status. You got a promotion. You got an inheritance. And when it happened to you, when you got a new name, your whole life was different now. The generations after you were different because you got a new name. And we see several times in the Bible where God goes to people and gives them a new name. And he shows up to his man, Abram. He said, hey, now I'm going to call you Abraham. You are going to be a father, had no kids yet, but you will be a father to many nations. Goes to his wife, Sarai, which means quarrelsome. Anybody like to argue in here? Put your hand down. <laughs> and says, you know what? You're not going to be an arguer anymore. I'm going to call you Sarah. You are a princess. You're a princess. Goes to the grandson, Jacob, whose name means mischievous and renames him Israel and says, you're going to be one that's triumphant with God. You're a prince in my eyes. Jesus goes to his disciples and he sees Peter, whose name was Simon. And Simon means unstable. It means untrustworthy. And he says, from now on, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. And upon this church, upon this rock, I will build my church. One last person, the apostle Paul. Jesus never changed his name. He chose his own name. Because his name was Saul, which means arrogant, means cocky, it means big in your own eyes. And Jesus got a hold of him. He said, you know what, I'm going to change my name to Paul. Paul means small. It means humble. Because God finds people who are small in their own eyes to do big things in his eyes. People that are small in their own eyes, who know their limitations, who know their weakness, to do big things in his eyes. 
See, we don't base our confidence on our ability, but on his. What can God do through you in a situation? And because he can, we will. Which leads us to our last point. Trust is a two-way street. <clears throat> now, let's be real here. The question is not just, do you trust God? But can God trust you? Because the reality is God loves everybody, but rare is the person who he trusts. It's just the truth. There's a verse in Luke chapter two, and it says that Jesus didn't trust people because he knew what human nature was like. Second Chronicles 16, nine says the eyes of the Lord search out throughout the whole earth, looking for people who are fully committed in him, looking for people. Doesn't say he goes to one town because they're all there, but no, it's so rare. He's looking across the world. Who's going to be faithful? Who's full of trust? Who can I trust? Jesus said it like this in Luke 18, eight. He said, for when the son of man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? God is looking for faithful people that he can trust. Paul talks about the fruits of the spirit and there's nine of them. He says there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I heard it said in the last year or so that that's not just a by, like a, an incidental order, that it's actually attainable. These are the easiest at the beginning and the hardest are at the end. Do you think self-control is easy? <laughs> no. That's why you find faithfulness. That's why you find trustworthiness towards the back because trust takes a while, takes a history, takes a track record. The people in your life that you really trust, you have some history with them. You know what they do when they have a bad day. You know who they run to. You know what problems they have, what solutions they have. But trust is a two-way street. So my question is, can God trust you? Can he trust you to say yes? See, I love the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and an angel shows up to Mary, tells Mary, hey, you're gonna be the mother of God's son. And she says yes. But you know, Mary could have said no. God doesn't make anybody say yes. And if Mary said no to God, you know what God would have done? He would have gone to the next best candidate. And he would have gone to each person until it fit, until that person said yes. God always goes to the person who says yes to him. Because the opportunities that come to, in your life when God asks you to do something, it's not, it's gonna have an expiration date. And you just gotta say yes whether you feel like you can or not. Here's a question. Can God trust you to love people? Will you say yes to loving people who don't look like, act like, talk like, vote like, or believe like you? Because it's about loving all lives, not just the lives like you. And Jesus is calling you to love those who are hard to love. Can God trust you with money? Are you being generous with what you have? 
Whether you make $30,000 a year, $100,000 a year, maybe you're in here and you're a millionaire, it's not about what you make, but it's about what you do with what you make. See, if I was making $20,000 a year and I said, hey, I can't afford to tithe, God can't trust you with a better job or more income if I'm not being faithful with little. See, God said when you're faithful with little, then you will be faithful with much. All the little things in your life that you think aren't important are extremely important to God. Because if God can't trust you in this, why would he give you the big things of his kingdom? He wouldn't. And giving begins after the tithe. This changed my life. My tithe is just me returning God's money to him. That is not giving. Generosity is everything after that. My sacrifice is everything after that. When I, when I continue and we start again to give towards the Oaks building, it's not about a building. It's about people. It's about the lives that are going to be changed because of your seed, because of your sacrifice, because you remember when you were lost, when you were broken, when you had no hope, when you had no future, and Jesus saw something in you, and he made you good. And there's people out there that are still lost, still have no hope, but because us, because we're advancing his kingdom, they'll be reached. I believe he can trust us, but we must show him by our actions and not just our lip service. There's a man, I'll just go ahead and close here. There's a man named Charles Blondin, and he was a French tightrope uh, walker, and people would come and from far and away to see this dude. And he would actually go to Niagara Falls in New York and he would get a tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls and tie it to the other side. Now I want you to picture the scene. Niagara Falls is over 3,000 feet wide. It's half a mile wide. It's 164 feet high and more than 75,000 gallons of water flow over it every second. When the water hits the ground, it hits the floor with 2,500 tons of force. And hundreds of people would gather around and pay to see Charles accomplish these incredible feats. That's good. Thank you, Tim. And he would do this time after time to the crowd's shock and awe. But every now and then, he wouldn't just make it easy, although I would never want to do this. He would just walk over the tightrope, but then he'd change it up. One time, he got a blindfold, put it around his eyes, and walked across. And he did that for a few days, then he changed it up. He got some stilts. <laughs> this dude's crazy, man. He got some stilts, and he walked across on stilts for a few days. Then one day, he got a wheelbarrow. And he got on the tightrope from one side of the Niagara Falls, and very carefully, he walked across and he did this for several days. And the crowd was hooping and hollering and they were amazed at what he was doing. And then he gets to the other side 
safely. He looks at the hundreds or the thousands of people that's there, turns his wheelbarrow. He said, do you believe that I can get across again? And they shouted, we believe, we believe you can do it. He said, he started smiling. He said, all right, now who wants to get in with me? Nobody said anything. Nobody volunteered. See, religion is saying it's a vocal belief in God. But your trust and your relationship with Jesus, I'm going to say I'm going to do more than my lip service. I'm going to actually walk it out. I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow and I'm going to trust you with my life. See, they said they believed, but they didn't follow up their vocal belief with action. Faith doesn't just say, but faith moves. Here's what God's looking for. God will move through people who move. See, God's a man of action. Does he need prayer? Yes. But will you move when God says to move? Will you do the corresponding steps? Will you step out in faith when he calls you to do something? Because here's what we got to remember. God makes a habit of choosing insignificant people to do significant things. And he uses people that are small in their own eyes to do things that are big in his eyes. And you're never going to be enough. You're never going to arrive. You'll never be perfect. But it's not about that. It's because he is that we can. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, right now, collectively in myself, we hope this message yes has blessed your life. And if it has, we want to invite you to sow into what God is doing here at Oaks Church. It's as simple as going to oakschurch.com and clicking the Give button. On behalf of Oaks Church, thanks again for listening and have a great week.